Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, will you open up with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. It's a joy to be with you this morning. We are continuing on in our series in the Gospel of Luke, A Kingdom for All People. Luke chapter 4, hear God's word starting in verse 31. Speaking of Jesus, and he went to Capernaum, a city of the Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For what authority and power he commands the unclean spirits? And they come out. And reports about Jesus went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, uh, who had any... Uh, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God, but catch it, but he rebuked them. And he would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and, and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, Eric Tonis, which is a professor at Biola University, he tells the time in which he was a really good hitchhiker. I don't suppose that you would do it today. It was a little bit safer back then, but he was very good at it. In fact, he talks about how he made it from Connecticut all the way to Alaska, and only on two occasions did he have to wait for more than 20 minutes for a ride. He tells his secrets. He says his secret really wasn't just putting up his thumb, but he actually made a sign. And on that sign, he would put the next destination he wanted to go. It was close destination, not too far, so you wouldn't put a burden on the rider, but you would just put the next big city upon this sign, and hopefully somebody would give you a ride. Well, then he tells of the jackpot of all jackpot hitchhiker rides. This person took him from Spokane, Washington, all the way to South Dakota, New Rapids, South Dakota. And best part yet was this driver was driving a red Corvette. Imagine Professor Taunus and this man, here he is sitting in the passenger seat just enjoying themselves and cruising across the country. And it got even better though. The man of this red convertible, he owned a water park in South Dakota, offered 
that there was an apartment attached to this water park offered Professor Taunus the ability to stay in it and to enjoy the water park all night long. Well, that's exactly what Professor Taunus did. Having the water park all to himself, a young man's dream. Well, notice how this is only possible because of the red convertible driver's authority over this water park. If he had no authority over this water park, Professor Taunus wouldn't be able to enjoy this water park. He wouldn't be able to enjoy it by himself. But because this red con- driver of the red convertible had full authority over the water park, Professor Taunus didn't have to be w- worry about being kicked out. He can rest and enjoy himself fully to the wee hours of the night, cruising along the lazy river, taking on the slides by himself, just having a blast. I think the moral of the story is pretty simple. There is a type of authority that we can find ourselves going under that actually is a great benefit to our lives. There's an authority that we can place ourselves under that doesn't become a burden to our lives, but actually can be full of or bring us great joy and peace. In fact, in our text this morning, this is exactly what Luke is doing. He's trying to show us this authority that actually is a benefit that can bring great peace and joy to our lives. And what is that authority? It's Jesus' authority shown in our text. An authority that when we place ourselves under actually is not a burden to us. And I know that sounds strange because I think when we think of authority, we think of something that we have to question or, or resist or rebel against. But this is a joy that actually is a great benefit to our lives. That can bring us great peace and great joy. In fact, in our text, he gets to it right away. He's trying to describe Jesus' authority, and he does it in three different ways. There's actually four in the text. I didn't have time to actually make to the fourth. But we see Jesus' authority, his full authority over truth. We see that in his authoritative preaching. We see his full authority over the spiritual realm as he casts out a demon. And we see his full authority over the physical realm as he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law's fever And we also see his authority over the Sabbath. I didn't have time for that one, so you can discuss that in your community groups tonight or on Wednesday. But we're going to discuss these first three. And as we look at this passage again, we see that this authority should bring us great rest. It should bring us great joy because it becomes this covering over us. It assures us that God is sovereign because he has authority over all things. It assures us that that we can find ourselves under it, finding great joy, because we understand that nothing can snatch us out of God's hands. It's a great authority that we find ourselves under. And notice, as we find in, in, in the beginning here, Luke introduces us to Jesus' authority pretty quickly as he introduces us to his authoritative teaching. Where is Jesus? He's in the synagogue, again, on the Sabbath. And here he is preaching. He's preaching... And notice is this text, one of the things we have to see is that from verse 31 to 44 is actually just a 24-hour period. This is just one day in Jesus' life. It's a busy day. But this is just one day, and notice where he is again. He's teaching with great authority. In fact, notice what it says again in verse 31 to 32. Jesus went into Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, 
catch it, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Mark's gospel actually helps us go a little bit further to show the contrast between Jesus' authority and the scribes. Mark writes, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. It's helpful because it shows the contrast. Jesus is teaching with authority the scribes did not have. After all, as he is teaching, he's teaching as truth is coming directly from him, and it was. When Jesus taught, people took notice. They stood in awe of what he was teaching about. We're not exactly told what Jesus is teaching in this moment, but I imagine it's very similar to what we find throughout the New Testament, specifically maybe even like the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the first time that you read the Sermon on the Mount? It's deep. It's heavy. It's, it's a teaching that goes way beyond the outward kind of performance, but it penetrates the heart. And as Jesus is teaching, as we even look at the Sermon on the Mount, we see the same reaction from the people. They're amazed. They're in awe. And we see the same thing in our text as well. And for us to notice the difference, we have to notice a little bit about the scribes and how they taught. See, the teachers of the law and the scribes, they had a tendency to be ones who simply quoted about the old rabbis and the old tradition. So they would get up and they would quote this teacher and this rabbi and what he said on this, and then they would, on top of that one, do one other quote about this rabbi, and they would just kind of build this foundation of different quotes and teachings from the old rabbis. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus didn't need to quote secondary sources because he was the source. He taught as he was the author of the very book he was teaching on. And that's a different type of authority. In fact, I remember myself in seminary, and there was this one class in which this student wanted to argue with the professor. What he didn't realize, though, is this professor was, this was his area of expertise. And they're kind of going back and forth in class until eventually this student says, kind of gets fed up, throws his hands in the air, and he says, well, that's just a matter of opinion. The professor stopped him and says, you're acting like our opinions of our equal value. He said, our opinions are not equal value. I've spent 40 years coming up with my thesis statement on this very subject. How long have you been thinking about this? A couple weeks? He goes on to say, I have the leading book on this very subject. I am the author of this leading book. So as you're stating secondary sources, I don't have to, say, to state secondary sources. I quote myself. And immediately... The student was quiet. He realized that this teacher had an authority on this subject that was quite different than his authority. This is how Jesus taught. There was no need for him to quote secondary sources as he was the author of life. He was the author of the book he was teaching on, so as he taught, it was different. In fact, do you remember what John 1.1 says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And can you imagine being in the room and hearing Jesus teach and preach from a book that centered around Him, pointed to Him, as He was the author? It had to be awe-inducing. And as we see 
Jesus, being the very definition of truth, the author of life as he's teaching, that brings us great assurance. Because it allows us to see whatever Jesus says is true. Because he is truth. With Jesus, it's never, I think this can happen or it should be this way. It's always, this is how it is. And again, that brings us great assurance. Because here's a world who is searching for truth. And what they need to begin to understand is our search for truth should begin with Jesus Christ. Because every other religion is pointing to somebody else. And yet Jesus says, look to me. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. And as we begin to look and see Jesus, his authority over all truth, we need to be careful that we don't become like the student in the seminary class. Too often we think we understand life and we understand these principles and we go to argue with Jesus and say, well, it's just a matter of opinion what's in your book, Jesus. And Jesus is trying to tell us our opinions aren't the same. We're mankind. He's God himself that created the universe and holds authority over all things. So one of the sayings we say a lot in this place is we want our people to think biblically about all things. What that statement really is, is we're saying that we believe in Christ's authority and we want to submit ourselves under God's word and allow his word to shape our life, to allow him to mold and mend us rather than us trying to mold and shape the scriptures. Do we understand Christ's authority over truth? Not only does this writer show us Christ's authority over truth, But Luke now begins to show us Christ's authority over the spiritual realm. In fact, what's so interesting, here is Jesus speaking, and as he's speaking, there's somebody in the synagogue who cries out, who's demon-possessed. Notice in verse 33, and in the synagogue there was this man, and his spirit didn't complete, and he cried out with a loud voice. How scary that had to be for everybody else. The man possessed says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And immediately throughout this Luke's gospel, we've already seen Satan's confrontation with Jesus quite a bit. We saw at the beginning of chapter 4, as Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. We saw it in the middle as Jesus is, or Satan is trying to use Nazareth and the rejection in Nazareth to sway Jesus away from his mission And we see it here again by Satan's messenger. What's so interesting, if you just follow Luke's gospel, we see these confrontations continually happening. Luke's gospel, he uses the word demon 24 different times. He uses unclean spirits six different times. Use them interchangeably, so we see it quite often throughout Luke's gospel and the confrontation between the two. So here Jesus is. He's talking teaching on the text and somebody cries out startles everybody else but notice what jesus response or what the what this demon says first the demon says walks into the room what have you to do with us here's an hebrew idiom we're really saying why do you involve us the demons knew what was taking place christ came to conquer the darkness So this demon cries out, why do you involve us? What do you have to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? 
Then Nicodemus says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And isn't it crazy as we look throughout the Gospels, it's always the demons that know exactly who Jesus Christ is. And it's always the demons that instantly obey his commands. In fact, Jesus simply says, be silent and come out of him. And the evil spirits, it doesn't talk back to Jesus. It doesn't kind of pause. No, it immediately flees. And immediately we see Christ's power. That Jesus speaks and the evil spirits listen in complete obedience. And again, if you just look at every other interaction, Jesus and, the, and, and evil spirits, we see the same reaction. They listen instantly. They instantly obey. There's never a hesitation. And again, we see Jesus' full authority over all of them. And that should bring us great assurance as well as we submit ourselves to Christ's authority. That we don't have to fear the spiritual realm. In fact, imagine a junior high student who goes to school, but his father is the security guard. Imagine the assurance that he submits himself to this authority. That yes, some kid might try to bully him, but what does this child have to do? He just has to instantly call out to his father, and his father comes running and protects his son. And that's a beautiful picture of how it is with us and our God. That yes, Satan and his demons might try to tempt us, might try to persuade us, but all we have to do, according to James, is to submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God, resist the devil, and and he will flee from us. All we got to do is cry out to our Heavenly Father, and His protection comes quickly. In fact, what we notice in verse 41 is Jesus continuing to cast out not only this man's demon, but many. We find Jesus casting out demons again later in that same day, and again we're told these demons cry out, and they call, and they know that Jesus is the Son of God. But notice what Jesus actually says. Jesus silenced them because they know who He is. The question we ask is, why doesn't Jesus want His identity to be seen by all? In fact, Jesus does this quite often. Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals a leper, tells the leper, do not speak about it. The question we ask is, why is Jesus not wanting the demons to, to tell the people who He is, and why does He tell this leper not to speak about him. Well, this is what theologians call the messianic secret. Messianic secret is simply this. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he doesn't want his identity to, to be revealed to people. The question again is, why is Jesus keeping his identity early on in his ministry a secret? Well, I want to suggest to you the answer is found in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 It says that Jesus is with the crowds and feeling that the crowds are trying to make him king by force, he leaves the area. In other words, Jesus' main mission is to go to the cross. And if the people make him king too early and force him to be this messianic king that they want him to be, he's going to miss his mission. The crowds by force are going to try to take him away from his mission, so he keeps it a secret to reveal it in his due time to assure that the cross becomes his main priority. 
So again, we understand Jesus has come to be our Messiah. So we see his authority in his teaching, authority over all truth. We see his authority over the spiritual realm as he speaks and the demons immediately obey. And we'll see his authority, lastly, in the physical realm. Because this is what it says, notice what it says in verse 38 to 41 with me. Jesus arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. So notice what's taking place. He's speaking in the synagogue. He's preaching, teaching. Then immediately he casts out this demon. And then we're told he goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house. Notice that Peter is actually married. I think oftentimes when we think of the disciples, we think them as single men. But here Peter is married. And we're told that the disciples come to him, all those in that room, and they want, they want Jesus to go heal Peter's mother-in-law. Mark's gospel actually tells us exactly, kind of adds on to this, and we see the scene. Jesus walks into the room, he touches Mary's mother, or, sorry, Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law, he touches her, he rebukes the fever, and the fever immediately leaves, and notice it's on the Sabbath. A lot is taking place in just a short amount of verses. And if we fly over it too quickly, we'll miss it. Jesus touches her. Rabbis didn't touch women, specifically women that were not related to them. Not only that, Luke is writing this, he's a physician. He says it's a strong fever. There's a possibility if Jesus touches this this woman, that he could become sick himself. On top of that, he would become ceremonially unclean. To touch somebody who's unclean with fever or sickness would make him unclean according to the law. And then on top of that, this is all happening again on the Sabbath. Listen to what Ben Revington writes about this situation. He says, Thus, while touching a non-related woman was itself an offense... And touching one that was sick and therefore unclean was doubly so an offense. Performing this act on the Sabbath only compounds the social offense of what Jesus is doing in this minute. And imagine being Peter's mother-in-law. Noticing all the taboos of her culture and her society. Knowing the law and what it says about healing on the Sabbath, but then seeing Jesus walk into that room, touch her, rebuke the fever, and the fever instantly leaves. You talk about a precious moment with the Savior. It was in that moment that we see Jesus is not only full authority, but we see his compassion as well. Luke is trying to show us 
this awe-inducing authority, and it would have been very easy for him just to state one of these instances of Jesus Christ's full authority, but he doesn't do that. He, he puts them on top of each other. We see Jesus literally speak and the people be put in awe. We see Jesus speak and demons flee. We see Jesus speak and fevers disappear. And you just keep reading the scriptures. You know that Jesus speaks, he can calm storms. There's nothing that does not come under his authority. What is Luke trying to draw us to? That if Christ has authority over all things, should our, not our lives fall under that authority as well? And again, this is not an authority that we should fear, but this is actually authority that becomes a benefit to our lives. As we understand that He's the one who is in control of all things, so with us falling under His authority, we don't have to fear anything as well. He's got our back. In fact, we see it again in the text as well. Because we're told after she gets healed, she gets up and begins to serve Jesus and the rest of those in the room. It was as if the fever never hit her. There was no time or no need for recovery, no time for her to gain her strength back. In an instant, she is fully recovered like she never even had a fever in the first place. Do you see Jesus' power? And again, you just keep reading, and Jesus keeps showcasing his compassion in the rest of the text as he continually lays his hands on people who come. The sun sets down, which is now after the Sabbath, so the people come running to Jesus, and we're told that every single person that comes, Jesus lays his hands on and heals and casts out the demons of those who were possessed. And yet again, we find ourselves standing in awe of Christ's authoritative power over all things. But his authority over all things points us to his authority over our own lives specifically. His authority to be the one who can forgive us of our sins. Do you see where Luke is going with this? He needs us to see that Jesus is special. He needs us to see that there's nobody like him, that he's unique that he's compassionate, but all things fall under his authority. In fact, Luke needs us to see that Jesus is the Messiah who's brought a kingdom for all people. That's what Luke is trying to drive us to because there's a stronger authority that he needs us to see and that's the authority to forgive, forgive sins and we see it in our text as well. Notice what it says in verse 43, don't miss it. Here the people are trying to get Jesus to remain there, and what does Jesus respond with? Verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. They wanted Jesus to stay in this area. Jesus says, no, I'm on a greater mission. Yes, the healings, the physical healings are great, but I have come to spiritually heal my people, so they can experience the kingdom in its fullest. Luke is trying to show us, yes, Christ's authority over all things, but it should push us to see Christ's authority over our lives and a reassuring authority that when we turn our gaze to Jesus, that we turn to him by faith, 
that we can have the assurance that He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we will be adopted and called His very child, and nothing will ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. That's an authority that is not restricting us, but it's an authority when we find our greatest freedom. There is a type of authority that actually can be a benefit to our lives. And that authority is found when we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, when we turn to him and says, yes, I will submit to my king. God, I am thankful for passages that remind us of your power. God, I think the question that arises in our own souls when you see your authority over all things sometimes is why don't you heal our children or ourselves of the sicknesses or the trials that come our way. And yet I'm reminded that what you're looking for is dependence. That you want your people to turn to you. And sometimes we're thankful for the, the sickness and the illness and the trial because it turns our gaze upon you. And more importantly, it points us to the one who heals our greatest need to be forgiven of our sins, to gain eternal life, to get us to that area and that point in your kingdom where we will have no more tears and no more sickness. So God, this morning, we submit ourselves to your full authority. And part of that is just trusting you. Trusting you in the trial, trusting you in the sickness, trusting you in the hardship. That you are a God who is sovereign over all things. And at the command of your voice, all things listen. So God, let us, let that be us as well. Be with your church. Unify your church. Build your church. And send us out. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.